You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The Rockefeller name has a long and storied history in American business and politics. From Standard Oil co-founder John D. Rockefeller, widely considered the wealthiest person of all time, to his grandson Nelson Rockefeller, who served as both governor of New York from 1959 to 1973 and vice president to Gerald Ford from 1974 to 1977. But among the long line of Rockefellers, there is one whose story is marked by tragedy, mystery, and grisly theories about his untimely death. Michael Clark Rockefeller was Nelson Rockefeller's youngest son, a quiet and artistic young man who wanted more out of life than four walls in an office building. So after graduating from Harvard in 1960, Michael Rockefeller decided to make his mark on the world not as another businessman or politician as many a Rockefeller had done before him, but instead as a collector of what was then called primitive art, made in some of the world's most remote locations. But a year later, on a trip to Dutch New Guinea, the small boat transporting Rockefeller and his companion Rene Wassing capsized roughly 14 miles from the shore. Rockefeller felt he could make it to land and swam off into the water, never to be seen again. What followed was a media whirlwind, as the son of New York's governor and the scion of America's most famous millionaire family remained missing despite an enormous search effort. And not only was Rockefeller never found, but when the case was later reopened, some concluded that he did, in fact, make it to shore, where he was killed and cannibalized. You're listening to History Uncovered, brought to you by the digital publisher All That's Interesting, where we explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past. I'm All That's Interesting staff writer Austin Harvey, and today we're looking into the mysterious disappearance of Michael Rockefeller and the chilling theories that surround it. In the primeval jungles of southwest New Guinea, all the modern resources of the civilized world are employed in the search for the explorer son of New York's Governor Nelson Rockefeller. An expedition seeking primitive art brought 23-year-old Michael Rockefeller into the remote region where the water is infested with sharks and crocodiles. In 1954, Nelson Rockefeller, at the time working as the special assistant to the President for Foreign Affairs, founded the Museum of Primitive Art, a now-defunct museum that used a now-defunct term to describe the artworks of various indigenous peoples around the world. He supplied the museum with his own collection of tribal art, and its doors opened to the public in 1957 when Rockefeller's youngest son, Michael, was a student at Harvard. By the end of the decade, Nelson Rockefeller was the governor of New York, and Michael's graduation day was fast approaching. Of course, his father expected him to continue the Rockefeller tradition and help manage the family's business empire, but Michael found that what had brought him the most joy were his trips abroad. He had lived for months in Japan and later in Venezuela, and studied history and economics, graduating cum laude from Harvard. Ultimately, his wanderlust and curiosity and his father's penchant for non-Western artwork opened up a promising path for him. Working with a team from Harvard's Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology, Michael Rockefeller would embark on an expedition to study the Dani tribe of Dutch New Guinea. Rockefeller's primary responsibility on this expedition was to record sound for the documentary Dead Birds, directed by Harvard anthropologist Robert Gardner. 
The film was highly acclaimed and used a nonlinear narrative style to examine death through the battles and myths of the Dugam Dani people in the Balium Valley of modern-day Papua New Guinea. It was later even added to the National Film Registry of the Library of Congress. Unfortunately, Michael Rockefeller would never live to see the film's release in 1963. While working on the film, however, Rockefeller and a friend from the expedition broke from the main group for a time to study a southern tribe known as the Ozmot. The Ozmot tribe had long lived in isolation, and despite the presence of Dutch colonial missionaries on the island, they had never seen a white man. The Ozmot also held the belief that spirits inhabited the land beyond their island, and when white people suddenly arrived on the island from across the sea, the Ozmot believed them to be supernatural beings. This didn't mean they held their visitors in high regard, however. They tolerated being filmed, but they refused to sell Rockefeller or other members of the expedition any of their cultural artifacts. The Rockefeller felt that he had finally found what he was looking for, a group of people whose values existed in stark contrast to those of Western society. If he could bring home some of their artifacts, he could exhibit them in his father's museum and inform the Western world of this wild and remote country. The Osmont people were deeply spiritual and revered things like wood as sacred, believing that they themselves arose out of it. As a result, they were considered to be the best woodcarvers of the Stone Age, and their wooden works have been featured in museums across the world. But wood was not the only thing the Osmot held in high regard. And the other subject of their worship was far more macabre. Wars between tribes were common, meaning death was equally common. But for the Osmot, death was just the beginning. Osmot warriors often took the heads of their fallen enemies and consumed their flesh. They emptied out the skulls and sealed the eye sockets and nasal openings to prevent evil spirits from entering or exiting the body, then displayed the decorated skulls in their homes. Sometimes they even rested their heads on their skulls and used them as pillows. In one letter home, Michael Rockefeller wrote, The Osmot is like a huge puzzle with the variations in ceremony and art style forming the pieces. My trips are enabling me to comprehend, if only by a superficial rudimentary manner, the nature of this puzzle. His interest peaked, Rockefeller and the expedition returned home, and plans for a second trip began to take shape. Almost immediately after returning, Michael Rockefeller laid out his goals for a second expedition. He corresponded with Adrian Gerbrens, the deputy director of the Dutch National Museum of Ethnology who had been conducting fieldwork in Osmot, and had assigned to him a government anthropologist named René Wassing from the Dutch New Guinea Department of Native Affairs. Rockefeller was sure that his exhibition of Osmot art was going to be the greatest the world had ever seen. So in October 1961, Rockefeller and Wassing returned to Osmot and talked a Dutch patrol officer into selling them his small handmade boat. Rockefeller carried numerous goods for bartering, including steel axes, fishing tools, cloth, and tobacco. Over the course of three weeks, the duo visited 13 villages and managed to put together a sizable collection of Osmot works, including bamboo horns, spears, paddles, shields, drums, and bowls. But what fascinated Rockefeller the most was the traditional beach pole, an intricately carved wooden pillar used in Osmot rituals and religious ceremonies that he described as inviolate for the encroachment of Western commercialism upon Osmot art. 
On November 18th, Rockefeller and Wassing set off once again along the coast of the Arafura Sea, intending to meet up with a priest named Cornelius von Kessel, the sole person who knew the wild regions of southern Osmot well. On the boat with them were two Osmot teenagers who had been serving as guides, but while crossing the Bedsch River, a sudden squall caused the gentle waters to form violent cross-currents, and the waves suddenly capsized their small boat. The Osmot teenagers dove into the water and easily swam to shore, reaching the town of Agates later that evening to find help. The Dutch began assembling search teams, but Rockefeller and Wassing were forced to spend the night clinging to the overturned boat. The next morning, Rockefeller reportedly told Wassing that he felt he could make it to shore, roughly 14 miles away. He plunged himself into the water, swam off, and was never seen again. Later that day, Wassing was seen from the air, and she was rescued the next morning. An enormous search for Michael Rockefeller then got underway. Ships, airplanes, and helicopters scoured the region, but there was no sign of him. Nine days later, the Dutch interior minister declared there is no longer any hope of finding Michael Rockefeller alive. Two weeks later, the search was officially caught off and Michael Rockefeller's cause of death was listed as drowning. And though there was much media speculation regarding the young Rockefeller's death at the time, the theories were baseless, and it wouldn't be for another 50 years that a truly plausible theory would emerge. In 2014, National Geographic reporter Carl Hoffman released a book titled Savage Harvest, a tale of cannibals, colonialism, and Michael Rockefeller's tragic quest for primitive art. A book that claimed the evidence from the inquiries of Dutch officials proved that Michael Rockefeller had, in fact, been killed and eaten by the Osmot. According to records and accounts compiled by Hoffman, a group of 50 men from the village of Otsjanep had been journeying home from the government post in Piramapun and paused at the mouth of the Iota River for a smoke as they waited for the tides to turn. Then they saw something in the water. At first, they thought it was a crocodile, but upon closer inspection, they saw that it was a Tuan, a white man. The man waved at them. One of the Osmot turned to the others and said in their language, People of Osjana, you're always talking about headhunting Tuans. Well, here's your chance. There was a debate among the group, some in favor of killing the white man, others against it. In the end, the former group won. The story was relayed to Hoffman by a Dutch Catholic priest named Hubertus von Pey, who had spent years in Osmot and knew the people and their language well. Von Pey had been told the story by four Osmot men who visited him in a missionary's house. When he pressed them for more details, what the man looked like, what clothes he wore, what happened to his body, it became clear to him who they were describing. Von Pey wrote a note to his superiors. Without having the intention of doing so, I stumbled across information, and I feel compelled to report this. Michael Rockefeller has been picked up and killed by Otschanep. The villages of Joe, Bahar, and Omadasep are all clearly aware of it. Cornelius von Kessel, the priest who Rockefeller had planned a rendezvous with, heard similar whisperings among the tribes. A year later, a police officer sent to investigate the crime reached the same conclusion, and produced a skull the Osmot claimed belonged to Michael Rockefeller. But the Rockefellers were never told of this evidence. Instead, these reports remained hidden away for years as the Dutch struggled to maintain control of the island, having lost half of it to the new state of Indonesia by 1962. Meanwhile, the world remained in the dark about Michael Rockefeller's fate. For half a century, no one heard about how his skull had allegedly been cut open and his brains eaten, how his bones were turned into daggers and fishing spears, or how the tribesmen drained his blood and coated themselves in it while performing ritual dances and sex acts. 
The Osmond of Oostjanup killed Rockefeller supposedly in response to an incident in 1957, when a group of Dutch colonials opened fire on a group of men from Oostjanup after a violent skirmish between that village and Omadisep. By killing Rockefeller, a member of the tribe of the white man, the Oostjanup believed they were claiming power that had been stolen from them when their own members were killed. Having learned of Rockefeller's fate, Hoffman prepared to return to the United States. On one of his last days in Osmot, he saw one tribesman miming a story to another. It involved spearing someone, shooting an arrow, and chopping off a head. The story reached its conclusion before Hoffman could capture it on film. He did, however, manage to record the epilogue. Don't you tell this story to any other man or any other village, because this story is only for us. Don't speak. Don't speak and tell the story. I hope you remember it, and you must keep this for us. I hope, I hope... This is for you and you only. Don't talk to anyone forever, to other people or another village. If people question you, don't answer. Don't talk to them because this story is only for you. If you tell it to them, you'll die. I am afraid you will die. You'll be dead. Your people will be dead if you tell this story. You keep this story in your house to yourself, I hope, forever. Forever. Hoffman believes the tail end of the story he caught was a recounting of Michael Rockefeller's death, that Rockefeller had been killed by the Osmot as a proxy for the white men who killed their fellow tribesmen. Given how much time has passed since Rockefeller's disappearance, though, it's impossible to know if Hoffman's theory is correct. Still, it is the theory that makes the most sense. Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. I'm History Uncovered's producer, Kit Westneat. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to follow the All That's Interesting and History Revealed pages on Facebook and Real History Uncovered on Instagram. Make sure you don't miss out on the new episodes and subscribe to the History Uncovered podcast. And keep up with our latest stories at allthatsinteresting.com. If you have a question about the show or just want to say hi, feel free to call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcast at allthatsinteresting.com. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like Legends of the Old West and Redacted History. Until next time, keep exploring. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.